listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. grabs the tail is convinced of the rope-like nature of an elephant, while the one who encounters a leg is sure the animal is defined by its tree-like solidness, and so on. I'd like to revisit that story in a whimsical way. I'd like to imagine that the six blind men actually encountered six identical elephants, and, as in the original story, each of them latched onto a different body part, thinking that, that what they had touched was the defining feature of the beast. Now, these elephants had never had the opportunity to look in a mirror, so they asked the blind men to tell them what they had discovered. And they were so impressed with the blind men's reports of what they were like that it shaped their identity. The one who believed he was like a rope became a skilled swatter of flies, offering relief not only to the elephant himself, but to anyone who happened to be riding on him. The one who was told he was like a wall spent every night sleeping across the gateway of his master's property, offering complete protection. The one who was found to be serpentine became a valiant beast of war, crushing opponents in the encircling grip of his trunk, just like a boa constrictor would do. Truth be told, he saw the tail with contempt, flimsy little thing that it was. The one whose identity was in her legs went for weekly pedicures, but she never washed out her ears. Okay, now I'm getting silly. But actually, it seems to me it's what the Apostle Paul often encountered in the early churches that he wrote letters to. In several of his letters that are preserved in our Bible, Paul talks about the wide variety of spiritual gifts that the believers have been given. Administration, practical helpfulness, teaching, hospitality, encouragement, prophetic wisdom, and so on. The congregations that he's writing to really have been well provided for by having such a wide variety of capabilities amongst their members. But instead of welcoming and celebrating that diversity, the people in his churches seem to make it a cause for competition and exclusion. They took to ranking the spiritual gifts in importance. Those with impressive gifts scorned those with more lowly gifts when they should have been appreciating them. You can imagine how it would go. The one whose gift was practical helpfulness would have no patience with the teacher who could sit on her duff all afternoon discussing some fine point of theology, despite the fact that there was work to be done. And the one who had a gift for administration would get twitchy when the dinner she has planned to the last detail is derailed by someone with the gift of hospitality who keeps inviting more people, squeezing more plates onto the table, and putting another pan of potatoes in the oven. And of course, the administrator and the host each know that they are the one who is right, and by process of elimination that the other is wrong. Perhaps it's not surprising that there was friction. In trying to get them to a better perspective, Paul uses the metaphor of a human body with the organs each having their distinct function but all being necessary together for the body to function well. Here's what Paul says. 
No matter how significant you are, it's only because of what you are a part of. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body, but a monster. What we have is one body with many parts, each its proper size and in its proper place. No part is important on its own. Can you imagine eye telling hand, get lost, I don't need you? Or head telling foot, you're fired, your job's been phased out. God has arranged the human body with very, very diverse parts. The hardness of tooth enamel and the ephemeral softness of central nerves. The complex chemical factory of the kidney and the simple plumbing system of blood vessels. And, unlike Paul's parishioners, they all work together in the best interests of the whole person. That, says Paul, is what the church, the local congregation, is supposed to be like. Like. People with very different interests and aptitudes working together, honoring and appreciating and supporting each other. Jesus also promoted this way of being together when he assembled his crew of disciples. Not unity through uniformity, but unity despite diversity. Think about Simon and Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. When Rome wanted to collect taxes across their empire, they found it most effective to recruit a local who was willing to do the dirty work to sell out and betray their own people and serve the oppressor and, of course, get rich in the process. That's who Matthew was. But it sure wasn't who Simon was. Simon belonged to the Zealots, the group that had a single focus on driving the Romans out of the region and restoring the autonomy of the Jewish people. Pretty hard to imagine more polarized perspectives, yet Jesus invited them to be on his team together. Then there was Thomas, who was deeply uncertain and found it hard to believe. He probably rotted the socks of Peter, who was brimming with confidence and bravado. And then there was John, who, if his gospel and epistles are any measure, was a reflective, contemplative type. Imagines the, the interactions between him and Peter, the one whose behavior was often characterized by act first, think later. Jesus pulled together a crew of people with very different giftings, capabilities, personalities, and interests. And he called them to work together in harmony, benefiting from the diversity and pursuing a common goal. It's not how most of us arrange our interactions. Over my career, I've worked in a couple of medium-sized organizations, and I found it interesting to observe that when we would have an organization-wide social event, an opportunity to connect with people you didn't interact with daily but sometimes exchanged emails with, like the technologically klutzy scientist and the person on the IT help desk, were those the kinds of interactions that happened at the big social events? Nope. Unless random seating was mandated... The scientists sat with the scientists. The tech team sat together, usually at a table in a dark back corner, and the finance people similarly sat in their own clique. We like being with people who are like us, who are wired up the same, who speak the same language as we do. It feels safer, less demanding, and so we organize our lives that way. Was Jesus unaware of that when he pulled together his disparate band of disciples? Was Paul unfamiliar with that basic principle of sociology when he called for harmony in the churches he wrote to? Were they setting themselves up for failure? How did they think this was going to work? 
Neither Jesus or the apostles implied that it was going to be easy. But along with built-in diversity, they taught about the special sauce that would make it all work. The sauce, which, of course, is love. Genuine love. Here's how Paul describes that secret sauce in the letter he sent to the church at Rome just after he had reminded them of the intentional diversity of gifts, abilities, and resources in their faith community. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the Master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. There's a lot there, a lifetime of work for most of us. But let's unpack it a bit. Paul says, love from the center of who you are, not just faking it on the surface. Another translation has, let love be genuine. No superficial hypocrisy that smiles on the outside while full of contempt on the inside. Not polite chit-chat at big table with someone who you then go on to speak badly about in your car on the way home. No, this love works hard to find points of connection and appreciation even with people we find difficult. The next bit sounds like it's giving us some wiggle room. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Does that mean that as long as we can classify someone as evil, we're fine to hate them? Nope, not even a bit. The word here for evil is neither inherently evil or corrupted and degenerate. There are different Greek words for those meanings. Now, this word doesn't apply to evil people, but evil behavior, behavior that causes hurt or harm, evil in impact. So when love is genuine, we actively avoid doing and saying things that might hurt or harm our neighbor and actively pursue what would be good and constructive. Then we move on to be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle or in the RSV translation, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The word here for brotherly or sisterly, love, is Philadelphia. Our contemporary world seems to be fixated on romantic love as the strongest or most ideal love, but the ancients didn't see it that way. They placed high value on filio, They reasoned that it is a strong and generous love that's not clouded or misguided by hormones in the way that romantic love can be. I may have very different interests and opinions from my sibling, but my love is not based on those sorts of commonalities. It's based on us having the same parents, and it's a permanent relationship. Given those traits, it's not surprising that Paul turns to Filio to describe the love he wants to see expressed in the church in Rome a love that doesn't depend on having shared opinions and interests, but on being children of the same God. Apparently, the congregation Paul is writing to has a reputation for being competitive, 
because he goes on to tell them that if they're going to compete, they need to compete at being more deferential, which sounds to me like a bit of an oxymoron, to practice playing second fiddle, to outdo one another in showing honor. I confess, every time I read that outdo one another in showing honor, I think of the goofy gophers from the Bugs Bunny cartoon who are always deferring to the other. You first? No, 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 not at all. You go first. But my dear friend, I would be delighted for you to go first. And so on. And remember, this is to be genuine love. Not deferring in a passive-aggressive way that is not kindness at all. Not outwardly deferring while inwardly recording a debt that they now owe you. No, this love can actually take great pleasure in seeing the other made happy. It actively honors the other person, both when they're there with thoughtful compliments and words of encouragement, and behind their back, sharing why we appreciate them. A sort of anti-gossip, if you like. The next bit focuses on a love that perseveres. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the Master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. The kind of genuine love that Paul is calling us to could sound like a great recipe for being taken advantage of and burning out. But here we are reminded that this path we are on is a long one, and if we're going to make it to the finish, we need to monitor our fuel level. I really find Eugene Peterson's translation helpful here. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled. Other translations focus on the flame part and exhort us not to lag in zeal. But don't burn out is a reminder that if our lives are to be vibrant flames, we need to pay attention to self-care and we need to set boundaries. Boundary setting isn't a failure of love. It's an essential part of mature relationships. And we can't support others when our well is empty. We need to stay connected to the source of love. We need to allow God to be healing and restoring us. I pray Psalm 23 as part of my morning prayer liturgy, and I'm reminded daily that God leads me beside still waters and restores my soul. Finally, Paul finishes with some really practical advice. Help needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. Paul is inviting his readers to create a close-knit community of mutual support and belonging. The instruction to focus support to needy Christians doesn't mean we should restrict our charity to the family of faith. It reflected the specific circumstances in first century Rome when many Christian families were impoverished because of active persecution of the church. Paul says, be generous, be hospitable, and enter into the joys and sorrows of others, joy and sorrow of others. This is what genuine love looks like. It's hard not to see the appeal in that kind of deeply interconnected, mutually supportive community. A community where love is genuine. But therein lies the problem for many of us. It's the genuine bit that we get stuck on. I'm not saying that we're a bunch of hypocrites, but for most of us who come from a churchy background, we've been trained to be on our best behavior at church. I've heard it said, probably by a doctor, 
that police see us at our worst, pastors see us at our best, and doctors see us as we really are. We may feel that if we tell someone that we're struggling or anxious, that they may judge us, that they will assume the problems are because of a lack of faith or obedience on our part. We may even apply those judgments to ourselves and feel shame. The last thing we want is to make it worse by adding the vulnerability of being honest. And so we slap on a plastic smile and tell people that we're fine. And we sit in church, a church full of happy, worshipping people, and feel more alone than if we had stayed home. Another challenge for many of us who grew up in church land is that we see ourselves as passive consumers, sitting in our little bubble waiting to be blessed. You may leave today thinking that it was a waste because you didn't get much out of the sermon. Okay, but that's like leaving a dinner party saying you didn't like it because the icing on the carrot cake was too sweet, when in fact the beef bourguignon was fantastic. I love the symbolism inherent in Big Table being in the middle of the service. It really is the big deal. It isn't enough. We need to find lots of other ways throughout the week to connect, to belong to each other. But it can be an opportunity to find those connecting points. Maybe books or basketball, shared tools or sharing the sorrow of a family crisis, cycling or chocolate or both. COVID may have squeezed us into bubbles of isolation, but Paul is beckoning us to come out of them and to connect and to give and receive genuine love. Jesus really has burned his bridges on this love strategy. He's put all his eggs in the basket of creating a diverse community characterized by genuine love. After three years with his disciples, times when they were involved in dramatic teaching to huge crowds, when they went on itinerant preaching tours, when they cast out demons and ministered to the needy, Jesus, in effect, says those things may be great, but that is not how my kingdom is going to come. In his last meal with them, he tells them, Just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is how all people will know that you are my disciples, because you have such love for one another.